Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Just like to add my welcome to Joe's. Glad that you're here this evening. Um, last Sunday night, I began just what I think will be a very short series, probably just three messages and. And uh, we're looking at, uh, I, I entitled it Meals with Jesus, but uh, it's probably a little broader than that. We're just looking at the role of um, food, would you believe? Food and drink. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, whatever you do, even if it's eating and drinking, do it to the glory of God. And I mentioned last week how um, I talked about the method of Jesus in approaching people. And uh, he didn't run projects, he didn't establish ministries, he didn't create programs or put on events, none of which are necessarily bad. But what Jesus did do is he ate meals with people. And the scripture says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And I also mentioned that Len Sweet's definition of the gospel, which I really appreciate, says uh, Jesus ate good food with bad people. And that's how he approached people in their lostness and in their brokenness. And I think there's something that we can learn from that and uh, that we can do to the glory of God. Luke's gospel particularly uh, has food as an incredibly significant theme. And as you read through Luke, you find Jesus either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I also mentioned that it was Jesus' table manners ultimately that got him killed. He so infuriated the Pharisees with his indifference to the food laws and the danger of what they believed was moral contamination that they decided this super spreader had to be eliminated. In the message that I have for you this evening, I want to talk about the role of food more broadly through the scriptures, perhaps something of an overview. And I mentioned that we in the West tend to look at meals and food as fuel nourishment that's needed to keep the machine running at an optimal level. For people in biblical times, and actually still in Middle Eastern cultures, meals and food play a much, much more profound role than simply calorific intake. Being welcomed at a person's table for the purpose of eating food was a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, of intimacy, of unity. Sharing the table was sharing life. Mary Douglas, in her book entitled Purity and Danger, writes, one cannot share the food prepared by people without sharing in their nature. And that statement should give us some insight into why the Pharisees were so shocked by and opposed to Jesus' table manners. Now, the Pharisees had no uh, trouble understanding that the kingdom of God would ultimately be a party. They just objected to Jesus' guest list. Once food is shared at a table in that culture, a bond is created between people, and that bond is regarded as sacrosanct. German scholar J. Jeremiah said, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, of trust, of brotherhood, and if required, of forgiveness. Now, as you read through the Bible, one of the things that you will come into contact with very, very quickly is this idea or the word covenant. Of course, you know that our Bible is divided into two, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but the idea and theme of covenant runs through the Scriptures. 
And covenants were agreements or treaties or pacts, if you like, that people entered into. And it could be between individuals, it could be various groups or tribes, it might be between nations. And sometimes we're introduced to covenants made between people and God. Covenants involve binding promises between the parties. And covenants always consisted of particular specified elements. So there were the words of the covenant. These were the promises and obligations that people in the agreement made one to another. There was the blood of the covenant. A sacrificial animal was slain and often laid out in two pieces so that there was a pathway between the pieces. You can read this in Genesis 15 where God made a covenant with Abraham. And the parties of the covenant walked through the slain pieces of animal basically saying, if I don't keep the words of this covenant, may my life be like these animals. So there were the words of the covenant, the blood of the covenant. There was a seal that was associated with the covenant that reminded the parties of their commitments. That might consist of perhaps a pile of stones if it's made between individuals. When uh, a covenant was made between God and people, as it was between God and Noah, the seal was a rainbow. When God made a covenant with Abraham, the seal was circumcision. When God made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, the, cover, the, the, the covenant seal was the Sabbath, and so on. So there were words, there was blood, there was a seal, and then there was always a meal. The agreement was consummated in a shared meal. So in Exodus 24, we have the story of the Mosaic covenant being enacted, and after it's enacted, Aaron and Moses, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders, it says, go up into the presence of the Lord where they see the Lord and they eat a meal. That was the covenant meal. Some scholars argue that the Hebrew word for covenant, which is the word bereth, actually is derived from the verb to eat. To eat the covenant meal meant that both, both parties were committed to keeping the covenant requirements the requirements of loyalty and faithfulness and allegiance. Most of you, I think, will probably be aware of the story of Daniel and his three friends who were carried off to Babylon. And in Daniel chapter one, we have the story where him and his friends refuse to eat the food that the Babylonian king offers them. Now, that refusal was much more than simply the fact that they weren't used to or didn't like Babylonian food. This didn't indicate that these guys were fussy eaters. The refusal had to do with a clear understanding that sharing the table was much more than simply consuming calories. It was to partake in and commit to covenantal loyalty with Babylon, allegiance to Babylon's values and to Babylon's God. So Daniel and his friends refused for reasons other than simply they didn't like the taste. At times in the Old Testament, covenantal meals were about reconciliation and settlement. Peace and restoration could be established and would be sealed over the shared meal. In Genesis 31, we have the story of Jacob and Laban. If you know the story, there's been years of strife and bad blood between Jacob and Laban. Jacob had run off taking his wives, who were Laban's daughter, daughters, and his flocks. Laban pursued him with men from his household, and it looked like there was going to be bloodshed. But just before Laban caught up with Jacob, God appeared to him in a dream, told him not to touch Jacob. And the story unfolds in Genesis 31, 44. It says, let's settle things between us, make a covenant, and God will be witness between us. 
Jacob took a stone and set it upright as a pillow. Jacob called his family around, get stones. They gathered stones and heaped them up, and then they ate there beside the pile of stones. Laban called it in Aramaic, Yega Sa Hadutha, witness monument. Jacob echoed the meaning in Hebrew, Galid, witness monument. Laban said, this monument of stones will be a witness, beginning now between you and me. That's why it is called Galid, witness monument. It is also called Mizpah, watchtower. Because Laban said, God, keep watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters or take other wives when there is no one around to see you, God will see you and stand witness between us. Laban continued to Jacob, this monument of stones, this pillar, this stone pillar that I have set up is a witness, a witness that I won't cross this line to hurt you and you won't cross this line to hurt me. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their ancestors will keep things straight between us. Jacob promised, swearing by the fear of the God of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and worship, calling in all his family members to not a meal, but the meal the covenant meal, all right? So the, the bad blood between these people were settled, things were reconciled over this covenantal agreement and it's sealed by a meal. Now where and when it was possible and where it was appropriate, covenants and covenant meals were commemorated on an annual basis. And the celebratory meal was a reminder that the covenant and its promises and its obligations still were relevant, still stood. To refuse to accept an invitation or to fail to attend that meal was considered a breach of covenant and would result in a severance of relationship and covenantal obligations. Again, a story that this uh, gives you the background wallpaper for the story, as it were. David fails to show up with a meal that he is supposed to have with Saul. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 20. On the first day, Saul notes that David's seat is empty and uh, he thinks maybe his absence is a result of perhaps ritual uncleanness and he'll be there tomorrow. However, the second day comes, David's seat remains empty and Saul realizes that something more is going on than ritual uncleanness. And if you read the story, he explodes in murderous rage because David's absence is seen as proof of the paranoid delusions that were going on in Saul's life and that he had been nursing regarding David's loyalty. When you're in covenant relationship, you regularly attend the meal that is designed to celebrate and commemorate that covenant. It's good to remind ourselves of the covenant meal that Jesus established in this context, the Eucharist, the communion meal. Regular participation by us as believers is not only a reminder of the agreement that has been made, but a renewal of it, a recommitment to it. To extend hospitality in that culture with the sharing of a meal was to accept the obligation to protect the person of your guest, even at the cost of your own life. Some of you may well have heard of a man by the name of T.E. Lawrence. If you haven't heard that name, you've probably heard the name Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence lived among the Bedouin tribes in the Middle East for many years, and he came to understand and appreciate their ways, ways that have barely changed since Bible times. And in his writings, he talked about the obligations of hospitality once they'd been offered. He wrote about being invited to a meal, and it would often, he said, begin with a coffee ceremony. On the guest's arrival, the coffee would be prepared by the host. It was a lengthy procedure. 
I mentioned last week that on average our meals take between 12 and 20 minutes in the West and we usually watch them in front of, t eat watching TV or you know, as we're doing something else. In the Middle Eastern setting, a meal, an evening meal particularly could take three or four hours. So the coffee was prepared. Beans were roasted over a fire and then cooled in a wooden bowl. Beans were then pounded in a mortar and pestle, boiled with cardamom. Three cups were considered polite. The first cup, called El Hif, was tasted by the host to make the guest feel safe, that he wasn't going to be poisoned or drugged. The second cup, El Kaif, was poured and tasted by the guest himself. And the third cup, El Dahif, was also drunk by the guest. Once that was drunk, he would shake out the cuff, hand it back to the host. Once coffee was drunk by the guest, he was regarded as being under the guest's protection. Lawrence talks about the time during World War I when the Turks placed a huge bounty on his head. In that time, it was 20,000 pounds, probably in our day about $2.1 million. And Lawrence tells the story of coming into a Bedouin camp knowing that should they be aware of who he was, he could be taken and turned over to the Turks. The amount of money being offered as a bounty would have been gladly accepted by those relatively humble people. He wasn't recognized and he was offered classic Middle Eastern hospitality. After he had partaken of the food and the drink, he felt quite free to disclose who he was, knowing that he was absolutely safe under their care and no matter how much money they had been offered, that they would not violate the terms of the hospitality that had been offered. In a biblical setting, those who betrayed others after having shared a meal with them were regarded as the very worst kinds of traitors. In Psalm 41 verse 9, David complained, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. Now, biblical historians think that David was probably speaking of a man called Ahithophel, and you can read the story of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16. He was one of David's closest friends and wisest counselors. But when David's son Absalom rebelled and tried to overthrow his father, Ahithophel broke the covenant of friendship that he had with David and joined Absalom's coup d'etat. That story, by the way, and those words in Psalm 41 uh, are the background for Jesus' words regarding Judas Iscariot's betrayal of him in John 13, verse 18. Where at the Last Supper, he said, I'm not referring to all of you, I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture, he who has shared my bread has turned against me. John, the beloved disciple, of course, leaned on the breast of Jesus at that moment and said, who is it? Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And verse 26 says, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. In that setting, for the head of the table to take a piece of bread, dip it into the food, and hand it to someone was considered a great honor for the person who received it. It was a courteous act of friendship and love. And in this case, it was done in spite of the fact that Jesus knew very well that Judas had determined to betray him. An interesting sideline fact with regarding both Ahithophel and Judas Iscariot, that they both went out and hung themselves. I suspect largely aware of their covenant unfaithfulness and the incredible shame that that entailed. Again, you know, just as an aside, while we're thinking through this, it's worthy of thinking about this obligation of loyalty when we come to the New Covenant meal, the Eucharist. 
You know, in keeping with our incredibly individualistic culture, when we tend to participate in communion, we come thinking about the fact that Jesus has taken my personal sin and, uh, and, and his broken body and his poured out blood deal with my justification. And of course, while that's true, more often than not, we don't think about the fact that not only are we eating in the presence of God, but we are eating with brothers and sisters. We come to the table together, and the table is about promising faithful allegiance to him. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if he eats bread and drinks from the cup unworthily, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means. We often hear, you know, when you come to the table, people will say, you need to be thinking about, don't come unworthily, and we immediately turn inside and say, oh Lord, what have I been doing? Is, you know, is there any sin that would make me unworthy? Friends, the whole of 1 Corinthians is about division in the body of Christ, people fighting and, and creating parties and cliques, and Paul is addressing that, and he's saying, when you come to the table, you have come to the table not just in allegiance to the Lord, but you come with brothers and sisters, and if you eat and drink unworthily, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means, you eat and drink God's judgment upon yourself. You are trifling with the death of Christ. That's why so many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. Man, that's a profound thought. The Corinthians were partaking in the sheer meal and at the same time being divisive within the fellowship. And Paul said such disloyalty is the reason for sickness and even premature death among you. That should be something that that is very sober for you and me as we come around the communion table. In Jesus' times, the meals carried a social significance and, and a loaded communication. And the more formal the meal, the more formal the communications. The messages that were part of the meals in that time were often about and related to honor, social status, rank, and of course, belonging. It was at a meal in Luke chapter 14 that Jesus spoke about people struggling to obtain the chief seats at the meal. And he's addressing these loaded communications associated with the meals because the seating arrangements told a story. Even how the bread at the table was broken and distributed told a story. The people who were at uh, the lowest of the social status at the table were often given the burnt bottom of the bread that was called the heel. The middle-ranked people obviously got the middle of the bread. The high-ranking guests were given the top of the loaf. Have you ever heard the term the upper crust? It's a word that's used to refer to the wealthy, upper-class aristocrats. It comes from that, from that um, habit. They got the upper crust. One wag once said that the upper crust are a whole lot of crumbs held together by some dough. Jesus' radical grace challenged and subverted those established customs, turning them on their heads. He deliberately flouted the meal conventions of his times. He deliberately blurred the boundary markers that the meals were intended to enforce. At Jesus' table, nobody could tell who were insiders and who were outsiders, who were the upper crust and who got the burnt part of the loaf. When he fed the multitudes, the 4,000 men in Matthew 15 and the 5,000 in John 6, he created a theological firestorm among the Pharisees who were watching on. 
For a start, the desert location meant there was no possibility of being selective with regard to the guest list. Obviously, in such an undifferentiated mass, there would be people who were unclean, there'd be undesirables, and there may even have been Gentiles. There's no seating plan to indicate social status. Jesus just told them to sit down in groups. There's no water available for hand washing and other cleansing rites. I mean, the Pharisees are asking, is the food that he's given out kosher? Have the loaves and the fishes been prepared properly? I mean, seriously, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, this is one event that should definitely have been canceled. This is a level five material, you know? This is gonna create massive contamination. The danger of it is off the scale, it should be canceled. In classic Pharisaical style, they missed the wonder of the miracle because they couldn't see beyond the technicality of broken law. They did the same, by the way, in John 5 when Jesus healed a man who'd been blind for 38 years. Rather than ask, who healed you? How did that happen? What did he do? They asked, who told you to carry your bed on the Sabbath? The healing was nothing. The carrying of the load on the wrong day was everything. Feeding the multitude of hungry people was nothing. Violating the food laws was everything. Listen, for the Pharisees, Jesus' habits of regarding food weren't just disturbing when he played public host to the masses. His more intimate dinners were a source of great consternation for them as well. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, they said. Listen, tax collectors weren't just people who worked for the IRD in those days. Okay, they were, they were collaborators with Rome. These were Jewish people who ripped off their own people to feather Rome's nest, and they were hated. They were regarded as collaborators, traitors, quizzlings, if you know the World War II term. In every age, people like that have been despised, and often when the oppressing force leaves, these people are hunted and killed. I read something the other day where in South Africa, people who were considered collaborators were given what they called the necklace. They would put a tire soaked with petrol around their neck and set it on fire. They, they were hated. Jesus reaches out to them. Two of his friends, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew and Zacchaeus, both of them were tax collectors. As an aside, I've often wondered how Jesus' disciples got on with one another because you've got Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, I don't know if you know what a zealot is, but they are fierce nationalists who in their spare time went around murdering collaborators. And here in the disciples, you've got a tax collector and a zealot. If I was Matthew, the tax collector, I don't think I would have gone to sleep around the campfire until I knew that Simon was snoring. And imagine Jesus pairing them up and saying, Matthew, Simon, you go to that village on a mission. You'd wonder if only one of them was going to come back. The basis of Jesus' table was messianic grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He didn't condone the lifestyle of the tax collectors. He challenged their greed. He called them to repentance, to transformation, and to discipleship, and some of them took up the offer. Now, the Pharisees would never have quarreled with Jesus about the need for repentance and transformation. What they would have said, though, is that is a precondition for table fellowship. 
You cannot have table fellowship with them until they go through that transformation. Jesus didn't require repentance and transformation in advance of table fellowship. It was actually the openness and the welcome of his table that made that repentance and transformation possible. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, repented after the meal, not before. You know, too often the church has made the same mistake as the Pharisees. And over the years, we've required people to clean up their act before they are welcome at our table. I think of a tragic story I heard of a street working girl who wearily one Sunday evening made her way into a church service. She didn't belong, and it showed in her dress, or lack thereof. She was broken, and she needed help. At a point in the service, the offering plate was passed around, and in some embarrassment, she put her hand into her purse and placed something in the tray as it passed by. The deacon who was overseeing the offering plate took out the money that she had put in, gave it back, and snarled, we don't take money from people like you. I'm reminded of dear John Wimber's advice. Quite simple. He said, you catch the fish before you gut and fillet them worth thinking about. Fish don't jump into the boat gutted, filleted, and crumbed. That comes after you catch them. Perhaps changing the analogy, sometimes I think the way we treat broken people who come to church is as stupid as saying to a sick people, get well before you go to the hospital. There's an old Arabic greeting, ahalan wa sahalan. Loosely translated, it says, may you arrive as part of the family and tread an easy path as you enter. Your family, and you're welcome here. May you find refuge. And actually, Matt uh, Perry was telling us this morning that that is still a greeting that you hear eight, nine, ten times a day in an Arabic culture. How many of our churches speak the opposite greeting when strangers enter? You arrive as an outsider, and we will make your path into our community as difficult as possible. Jesus not only engaged people in table fellowship before repentance, but he actually changed the focus in terms of what their repentance should actually center on. For the Pharisees, the issue was the external observance of the law. Jesus moved the debate, the theater of the debate regarding clean and unclean from the external to the internal. And he did it all at a meal. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through 41, it says, as he was speaking, one of the Pharisees asked him home for a meal. And Jesus accepted that shows the openness, by the way, of Jesus' table. Three times in Luke, he dines with Pharisees. He dined with tax collectors, but when Pharisees invited him, he also went. And each time in the home of a Pharisee, he used the occasion to outline significant aspects of his theology. In Luke chapter 7, at Simon the Pharisee's house, he put on the table his theology of grace. In the Luke passage in chapter 11, at a certain Pharisee's house, he put on the table his theology of holiness. And in Luke chapter 14, at the chief Pharisee's house, he put on the table his theology of the kingdom. Martin Luther was right when he commented, theology is table talk. So the scripture says, when Jesus arrived, he sat down to eat without first performing the ceremonial washing required by Jewish custom. This greatly surprised his host. 
Now, the washing of hands in that context wasn't just a matter of hygiene. Jesus hadn't forgotten his mother Mary's often repeated question, have you washed your hands before you come to the table? That's not what was going on. This is ceremonial. It's, it's prescribed by the tradition of the scribes. It's based on the oral law, not the scriptures. As usual, every single detail is prescribed. There's large stone vessels of water that kept for the purpose. They sat at the door and they were kept because ordinary water might be unclean. Some of you might remember in John's gospel when Jesus turned water into wine, there were six water pots that Jesus went to and turned those water pots into wine. The amount of water that was um, to be used was, stipula it was stipulated. It was, according to the Pharisees, a quarter of a log. Now, I have great fun trying to work out what some of the biblical words mean, you know, when you, and, I mean, I read that and think, what on earth is a quarter of a log? With regard to the water pots, I, in my King James Bible, it says when Jesus went out to change water to wine, there were water pots that contained two or three firkins apiece. And I thought, what on earth is a firkin? I've got to find out what a firkin is. And I got great illumination from my dictionary because it told me that a firkin is half a kindlekin. <laughs> so quarter of a log. What, what's quarter of a log? Well, it's about... Um, it's, a, it's about half a liter, apparently. And the first quarter of a log must be poured over the hands, beginning at the tips of the fingers, running up to the wrist. Then the palm of each hand is cleansed by rubbing the fist of the other into it. And finally, the water must be poured over the hand again, this time from the wrist and running down the fingers. And to omit the slightest detail was considered sin. And then often during the meal, bowl was passed around between the courses for the guests to dip their fingers in again. Jesus completely ignores it. He walks straight by the, the, the dishes and, and apparently when the meal was apart, he took the bowl and just simply passed it on. He deliberately failed to adopt the etiquette of the host. That's the cultural equivalent of refusing a handshake and the Pharisee is astounded. At the table, Jesus takes the opportunity to redefine holiness and purity, and he moves it from the theater of the external washings and, and ablutions and all of the stuff that goes on with them to the internal. Now, in Mark 7, he has a similar debate with the Pharisees, and, and it says this. One day, some Jewish leaders, religious leaders, arrived from Jerusalem to investigate him. And they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the usual Jewish rituals before eating. For the Jews, especially the Pharisees, will never eat until they've sprinkled their arms to their elbows as required by the ancient traditions. So when they come home from the market, they must always sprinkle themselves in this way before touching any food. I mean, heaven forbid you might have uh, broken the two-meter rule and gone close to a Gentile. Could be contaminated. So, of course, they washed endlessly, not only themselves, but their utensils. The religious leaders asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old customs? They eat without first performing the washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you bunch of hypocrites. Isaiah the prophet described you very well when he said, these people speak very prettily about the Lord, but they have no love for him at all. Their worship is a farce, for they claim that God commands the people to obey their petty rules. And in verse 14, Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. Your souls aren't harmed by what you eat, but by what you think and say. 
Verse 18, can't you see that what you eat won't harm your soul? For food doesn't come in contact with your heart, but only passes through the digestive system. By saying this, he showed that every kind of food is kosher. Then he added, it is the thought life that, that pollutes. He moves the theater of the debate in terms of what is clean and unclean from external to internal. It is the thought life that, pursue, that pollutes. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts of lust and theft and murder, adultery, wanting what belongs to others, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, pride, and all other folly. These, all these vile things come from within. They are what pollute you and make you unfit for God. Jesus says. Now back to Luke 11, at the meal, Jesus reiterates the same truth to the Pharisees. Then Jesus said, you Pharisees, wash the outside, but inside you're still dirty, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? Purity is best demonstrated by generosity. I find that last statement fascinating, but what you have to understand is Jesus isn't replacing food laws with giving laws. Generosity, as desirable as it is, doesn't provide atonement for sin. It's simply the fruit of a changed heart. Grace creates generosity, as it did in Zacchaeus. You don't need generosity to have God's approval, but once you've got God's approval, you're gonna be shaped by him in that eternal, internal area, and it's gonna create generosity. It is important to note what Jesus does not do here. He does not pit the external against the internal, rather he orders them correctly. The internal comes first, the external is the result, the consequent, the fruit. And true religion is living externally out of an inner reality. What you do on the outside should flow from and be consonant with what is on the inside. And this great debate takes place over food over a meal. Some of the most profound theology I think I've done has been over food with friends as we have delved into subjects and talked things through. Len Sweet comments, Christian theology is the art of table talk. The summit of Christian theology is reached at the table. Now to, tonight we've covered We've covered a great deal of ground, looking at the role of food, as it were, and of the table quickly throughout Scripture. The table played a huge role in Jesus' life, and I'd like to suggest to you that as disciples of his, it should play a significant and well-thought-out role in ours too. Remember Paul? I started with it. Whatever you do, eating and drinking, do it to the glory of God. Perhaps the table should be the most sacred object in every home, in every church. At tables, we don't just feed people, we build relationships, stories and memories. We teach and learn theology. At the table, where food and stories are passed from one person to another, from one generation to another, that's where each of us learns who we are, where we come from, what we can be, to whom we belong, and to what we are called. Identi identity doesn't grow fairly, it grows communally, and it grows at the table. I, I think, as disciples of Jesus, it's time to bring back the table to our homes, to our churches, to our neighborhoods, to our world. I don't think we grow, particularly as a disciple of Jesus, by sitting alone, sinking up 
syncing up the ink of a tablet. You actually grow as a disciple by eating at a table in relationship with other people. I, I think one of the questions that I'm asked many, many times as a pastor is, Don, can you be a Christian and not go to church? It's, it's, you know, it's such a difficult question to answer in our incredibly individualistic culture. Because if you say, no, I don't think you can, you just get this catcall of, of, of anger and antagonism. Of course you can. You don't have to be part of a church. I, I think when Paul talks about the body of Christ and each of us being members thereof, I cannot imagine that he would even think of the possibility of somebody seeking to be a follower of Christ without being part of a faith community. Identity doesn't grow ferally, it grows communally. And as you share your life, often, perhaps more often than not, over the table, you find out who you belong to, whose you are, what's, what's possible, how, how, how you think about things as you listen to other people. And what I want to do, I guess, through this series is to challenge you to think deliberately about how you do table. How does it work in your family? How does it work in terms of your discipleship? Maybe there are people that you should be inviting to the table. Disciples of Christ do table. Okay, and I'd like to suggest that all of us think powerfully about that. Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness and goodness to us. We thank you that you have prepared a table for us and that we are invited to it. You invite us to come. You said in the Psalms, it says, you will prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And Lord, I thank you that you have made provision for us so that we can come, that we can sit and we can hear you. We can listen to you. We can be changed by you. That as we meet together, Lord, as community, we interact and are changed by the lives of the people that you've put in, um, in our sphere. I, I really pray, Father, that you would teach us how to do table. We're a culture that really doesn't know how to do this very well. Blessed Holy Spirit, would you put seeds in our heart that in these coming days would grow, that you would water and that you would remind us at times when we come to the table, who should be there? what kind of messages we are sending as we gather there. Lord, would you help us to be really good disciples so that, as Paul said, we could eat and drink, even eating and drinking, and, and in so doing, glorify you. It's our prayer, Lord. It's our cry. We ask that you would do that in us and through us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.